pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that as we open this word that you'll be with us to give us good attention, to give us strength, uh, to enable us to listen well as those who have gone before us and have sat under the reading of your word and its teaching, it has caused great um, renewal of soul and spirit. And so we pray that this would be our experience today, that even as we hear this word, that it would put within us or revive within us a great sense of following after you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Nehemiah and chapter 9. I want to begin with the last verse of chapter 9. Read that one and then skip over to verse 28 of chapter 10 and read to the end of the chapter. All right, you got that? Nehemiah chapter 9, please. Verse 38. This is the word of the Lord. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And chapter 10 begins with the list of those names and then verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God... Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who acknowledged and under, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligations, obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. It is written in the law, We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord, the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes 
in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithes, the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, just to catch us up very quickly, remember Nehemiah goes back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The people of Israel had been in exile for quite some time. And, uh, and, 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 and some perhaps 80 or 90 years prior to this time, they had returned and, and rebuilt the temple. Uh, yet the city was still unpopulated, essentially, the city of Jerusalem. And uh, the walls around hadn't, uh, were still down. And so God calls Nehemiah to go rebuild the walls, secure the city. And now we're in, in a section here where Nehemiah is talking about rebuilding not simply walls, they're done, but rebuilding the people, rebuilding the city, rebuilding a community of people who will worship God. So that's where we are. And it's the seventh month, which is a special month. Uh, first day of the month, the trumpets would blow and the people gathered to listen to the word read, which they did for hours upon hours. This brought them a real sense of renewal and revival. And, and the word to them after listening to the law of Moses read during that day and receiving instruction about it was that they couldn't weep, but they were to be filled with joy. For the joy of the Lord would be their strength. They were to hear in this the faithfulness of God that they belonged to him. And that was to fill them with a sense of well-being. And no matter what was the case. Because still remember, even though they're back in the city, it hasn't really been rebuilt. They're still diminished economically and even spiritually in many ways. And, 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 and so temple worship hasn't really begun and flourished yet. It's going to begin to do that, but, but it hasn't flourished yet. And so they still find themselves there. They're still slaves to a, another nation. That they're still giving the best of everything that comes from them to the, another king. And so here they are in the midst of this. And still they're said, they're told, God is with you. You belong to him. Look what he's done. So, so be filled with joy in the midst of this situation. And you can be because you know that all is well, really. And so they were, there they were. And, and, and then, on the second day, after this one great day of joy and feasting, on the second day, they began to, to listen to the word read, again, the, the heads of the households. And as they did, they realized that there was a celebration during that month that was to take place from the 15th day to the 22nd day. And it was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths when they were to, to, to live in these little huts they would build. And they were to rejoice during that week. It was a great time of feasting and, and rejoicing because it was during that time that they'd remember how it is that God had kept them from Egypt to the promised land during that 40 year period where they were in the wilderness and God fed them and gave them water and protected them and all of that even to the point where their 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 clothes didn't wear out and their feet didn't swell during all that time God kept them and they were to remember that and to see his faithfulness and said this is okay and it was a great time of of rejoicing and then they find themselves on the 24th day, still two days later after that great, and they're still there. And they're still listening to the word of God 
read, and, and this time they begin to, to weep. And this time they, they, they put sackcloth and ashes on as a sign, really, of repentance. And they begin to pray. The Levites begin to pray. And as the Levites pray, they rehearse their history with God. And, and, and it's, a, it's a sordid affair, isn't it? At least from, from there, from Israel's perspective. Over and over again, what we see is God's faithfulness and kindness and love and their rebellion and hard-heartedness and arrogance to turn against him. Even to the point of one time wanting to go back to Egypt and, and go under that slavery again from which he had already delivered them. And, and, and so over and over and over again, this, 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 this cycle of, of, of rebellion and God's mercy and rebellion and God's mercy and rebellion and God's mercy and rebellion and God's mercy. And what they reflect upon during this time is that God has been faithful. That his mercy and his steadfast love has kept them and been great. And then we get to the end of all of that uh, from chapter 9 and verse 36. We, we have this. He says, Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we're slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. We're in great distress. And so they, they still have the same sort of distress that they had because they realize that all hasn't come yet to fruition. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't here last week, but a couple of weeks ago we, we talked about what was happening here in this chapter 9 is this real sense of a deep and profound repentance. A deep and profound repentance that they had seen, recognized their own sin. As the word of God was being read and as their history played out, they saw their sin before God. And that's how sin is revealed. It's always revealed in the presence of God. It always comes by way of his word revealing the holiness of God and and ourselves in his, in his presence. We saw that clearly with the prophet Isaiah on that day. That he went into the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And at that point in time he saw the Lord's holiness. But he also saw himself in the midst of that. And he realized his own sin. And so that's true you see. And, and they saw it. They recognized their sin. They were remorseful in the sense that they saw that their sin was evil. It was against God. It wasn't just that it had made their lives difficult. It wasn't just that they were sorry they got caught. It wasn't just that that, that made life more difficult for them. But they realized that they had offended God. And, and you know when we come to that point we realize how evil our sin is really. I realize how evil my sin Because it's against one who doesn't deserve it at all. It's against the Holy One, the Perfect One, the One who's loved us with a perfect love. And, and yet still we've turned against Him. And I think about that in the context of my own life and I realize how evil that really is. To turn against one who loves so perfectly and cares so deeply. So that's the remorse of it. We see the evil. We see how we've hurt simply ourselves. But God and his glory. And, and then we request. I like these R's. They help me remember these things. I, and we request of God forgiveness and we receive it. And that is so profound. 
Because you see, when we come to that place of, of requesting forgiveness and receiving it, then we've already, in this sense, recognized God as God, that he's holy. We haven't diminished him in any way. We haven't said, well, our sin really isn't that bad because God is that holy. No, 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 no. We've, we've, God is as holy as, as he reveals himself to be, as he is. And, and we, 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 we then own that our sin is really sin. So we know the height of God's holiness, the depths of our own sin. And we come then in the midst of that and we ask God to forgive us. Not on the basis of anything we can contribute to this. We, we don't offer him anything, no penance, nothing like that. Here, this I'm going to give you a little of this and that will pay for that. I'll, I'll do this good thing and that will cover that bad thing. It, it isn't that at all. We, we realize we're sunk and that the only way that he will forgive us and that we can request his forgiveness is on the basis of this mercy, of his steadfast love, of his promise to forgive sinners like us who come to him in repentance, you see. And we receive that forgiveness. What a tremendous gift. To be free of that guilt, to really be free of it. And, and we struggle, I think, with that. Can it really be true? And it is. We don't know anyone like God who forgives like that. And it just astounds us. And so here we are. And this sense then, after all of that, of reorienting our lives. And that's really when this sense of repentance comes in. Repentance means that there's a change in direction, a change of heart and mind that leads to a change in direction. It's a reorientation of our life. It's always, repentance is always related and tied to faith. That we're turning from sin to God. And we can do that only because we've, we trusted him. We, we, we trust that, that he's right, we're wrong. And if we turn from our sin, he will receive us. And when he does receive us and we walk with him, that that will be life, not death, but really life. And so repentance is always tied to faith. I, I think I gave you this quote a couple of weeks ago from Thomas Watson, an old, I don't know, 17th century Puritan. He, he says this, he says, two graces essential to the saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. In other words, there's no flying to heaven without faith and repentance. This is necessary for us. And it isn't natural to us. It's a gift of God. Inexplicable, I suppose, how the likes of me, a person like me, can repent of my sin. But it's, so it's a gift. Necessary to one's salvation. And there are, there are evidences of, of repentance. It, it brings fruit, this reorientation of life. You might remember that um, when John the Baptist was on the scene and, and early in his preaching, uh, he was with the crowds. This is Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. Um, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What he's saying to them is that you, you, you think you're safe because of your heritage. Isn't it at all? You need to repent. 
And once you do, we'll, we'll see evidences of that, of that repentance. And so their very normal, natural um, um, request was this. The crowds ask him, what then shall we do? In other words, if we're to reorient our lives, it means we're not to do what we had been doing. So, so now what? And this isn't a legalism. This isn't I'm going to change my life so that God will accept me. This is I come to God in Jesus for his acceptance. Now how should I live? Now should I live? How should I live that I belong to him? And so, he, and, and so John answered them. And he, he said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And he says, so, so someone who, who comes to God and ultimately through Jesus is, is one who has a sense of real generosity, uh, one who is, is honest, one, one who is content with what God is. So, so those kinds of things, there's fruit that come with this repentance, things that we'll, we'll see. It really is a reorientation of life. There is a sense in which this faith in Jesus is something that is clearly believed and also something that is ultimately seen. It's a recognition of our sin. It's a remorsefulness, a request, and it's a reorientation of life to follow, to follow him. I, I can't help but think when I enter into this, these waters of repentance, various sayings of, of Jesus. For instance, in Matthew in chapter 10, he says, Jesus does, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And clearly Jesus is using exaggerated language here to make his point. He isn't saying that we should hate those members of our family. That's not his point. But his point is that the love that you have for me will cause that to look like you don't love them at all. Or the love that you have for me comes before any love. If, if, there's, a, if, the, if there's a conflict, if it's either following me or following your father or your mother or your Mother-in-law, your daughter-in-law, follow me. That's the sense of it. He's even more dramatic as, as Luke has it later. And Luke, in chapter 14, verse 25. And again, these are, these are just words that suck the air out of you. But they, but they give a sense of, of what it really means to follow Jesus. Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you go, how much more dramatically can he put it than that? Of course, he doesn't want us to hate our parents. He tells us that we're to love them. He tells us that we even love our own lives. 
But we get the point. We get the point that everything pales when it comes to following Jesus. And I would even say that we love our parents because he says so, not because we think it's a good idea. Uh, We should love our spouses, not because we think it's a good idea, but because he says we should. We should love our children because he says we should. Uh, Not because it comes from our own wisdom or what we think is best. We're following him at every turn. And every good thing comes from him. And so he says, follow me at at every point. He goes on to say, make sure you know what you're getting into when you want to be my disciple. You better count the cost first uh, before you even come. Jesus was one of those leaders that... that, uh, that didn't want people just to follow him willy-nilly, uh, just to follow in a crowd. He said, no, 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 no. Know what you're getting into when you follow me. You're repenting. You're trusting in no one, nothing else other than me. And you're following after me. That's the, the sense of it that we have. And there's some sense in which these in Nehemiah's day are, are coming to that and getting to that point. Sadly, we see by chapter 13 that it all goes for naught, it seems. But, but at least at this point in time, this is, this is where they, they are, this real deep sense of, of repentance. And so then they say, so in light of all this, and we, and we see the fruit of their repentance, they, they enter in, they renew, if you will, this covenant that they have with God. It's, it's covenantal language. It's this kind of language that, that we make a firm covenant or a firm agreement in writing, and they take upon themselves an oath and a curse. In a sense to say, here's our promise, and if we don't fulfill this, then we expect, God, that you will curse us. Yeah, that's the sense of, of covenant. Now, the, the, they mention a few particular items here. These aren't arbitrary, nor uh, are these things they came up with on their own. These are all things they would have heard as the law was being read to them. The law of Moses, the covenant that God made with Moses. When God makes covenant with people, he's saying, this is how I relate to you. And with Moses, he says, and the people then, this is how I will relate to you, my people, Israel. Here's the covenant that I will make with you. And, and covenants were particular in the sense that, that a particular form, a particular structure, and generally in a, in a covenantal uh, agreement, covenants that God would make, he, he lays out some history. He says, this is who I am. In relation to you. And this is who you are in relation to me. And there's stipulations. This is what I promise to do for you. This is what I expect out of you. And then there are blessings and curses. If we're faithful to the covenant, here's the blessing. If we're not, here's the curses. They knew that going in. They rehearsed it in chapter 9 as the Levites prayed. And you can see the, the sense of this covenant with Moses just as God meets with Moses at Mount Sinai, after the people left Egypt, he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's, that's the history. Here's who I am. I'm the Lord your God. Think about that. Think about I am. Think about I'm your God. And think about what I did. I, I delivered you. I'm the God who has delivered you. That's my relationship with you. I'm the God who redeems. I'm the God who delivers you. And then he said, here's the stipulations. You shall have no other gods before me. Parenthetically, we say, why would you want to? I mean, after all that, why would you want to? 
And so he lays out these Ten Commandments, and then the, it's further explained and, and uh, put forth throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, really, uh, on how they're to relate to God. And he shares with them in the midst of all that the blessings if they obey the curses if they, if they don't. And these are some points that are particular to them in the days of Nehemiah, points out of that covenant that are very significant for them to make certain if they're going to be God's people, if they're going to follow after him, that they will obey. And so, so we see, we've seen this sense of, of, of understanding their sinfulness and, and receiving the mercy of God and, and now again to reorient their lives according to God's ways, according to his covenant. And we see there's, there's something about marriage here. We see there's something about Sabbath here. We see there's something about uh, 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 really care for the poor and trusting God. Uh, and we see there's something here about, about uh, uh, servicing and serving and maintaining the temple. All those important for them if they're going to walk with God in the midst of, 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 of the, life that they, the life that they live. So why these things? First, this, this notion of, of, of marriage. Note verse 36. Or verse 30. It says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters to our sons. You go, what's the big deal about that? Well, remember that God had made a promise to Abraham that out of his seed will come one who will bless all the families of the earth. And while God can raise up children of Abraham out of the stones, no one really expected him to do that. I mean, we really expected him to sort of carry this on kind of the normal way through real people who were of the lineage of Abraham. And so if that's going to remain, then they need to marry one another. They needed to stay a people. And that was important. But not only that, of course. But they would know because of the intimacy of marriage... Great danger is if an Israelite would marry a non-Israelite, that that Israelite would then be tempted to follow the gods of the non-Israelite that they married. It was a great danger always. You see, the, the way that Israel was often done in by the nations around them was not for the nations to come to Israel and just sort of say, here's our gods, will you follow them? but rather to say, marry our daughters. Have your, have, have, have your daughters marry our sons. And so over time, you see, the distinction of falling after Yahweh, after God, would be at best blurred, if not obliterated. And in fact, God is very um, uh, clear about that. In Exodus chapter 34, part of what they would have heard read Verse 12, he writes, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Bring down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Uh, do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. In other words, that's a good thing, that kind of loving jealousy. I want you, you're mine. I don't want anything to harm you. It's that good kind of jealousy. Verse 15, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. When they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. 
And so the people had to realize, all right, if we're going to be the people of God, we need to stay the people of God. This wasn't any admonition against interracial marriage. This wasn't racial. This was religious. So the sense is we, we can't dilute through marriage this intimacy, dilute uh, our following hard after God. Uh, that's why uh, very often this passage in Second Corinthians, which really isn't about marriage, is, is often used uh, in the context of marriage, where, where Paul writes to them um, that, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what participation has righteousness with lawlessness or fellowship, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God and so forth. Um, this sense, and then he goes on to uh, quote Old Testament passages. What Paul is really saying there in Second Corinthians is, you've yoked yourself with unbelieving teachers and you won't yoke yourself to me. And how can you yoke yourself with unbelievers leading you in worship when you won't yoke yourselves with believers leading you in worship. And we get the sense of this intimacy even in the context of marriage, of uniting with believers so that our faith won't be, won't be diminished. We, we know even in the best sense of, of Christian marriage how easy it is for marriage itself to become an idol. Or for family itself to become an idol. And that's even magnified in the sense of a believer is married to an unbeliever. Um, it's easy to so desire this wonderful relationship of marriage to the point that you'll serve marriage and not God. To the point you'll make marriage the ultimate rather than God being the ultimate. Seeing your source of joy in marriage, not in God. That he provides marriage to bring joy but we give him thanks for marriage, that he's the ultimate, not the marriage. And the same way with our children. It's so easy to, to, to live in such a way that we please the interest of our children rather than pleasing the interests of God and the lives of our children. So we have to be very careful there, even in the best circumstances. So he says, because of the intimacy of this relationship, it's so easy to, to, to be led astray because of desires to please the others. Now we know and amongst us and in the Christian church, uh, there are many believers married to unbelievers. We understand that. Sometimes it happens because you're two unbelievers who get married and then one becomes a Christian. Uh, and so there you go. You find yourself in that situation. Uh, sometimes it happens because the, you, you thought that the person you were marrying was really a Christian. And then you see after a while the fruit and they're not really are they cease following after Jesus. Uh, it may be that you didn't know any better as a Christian uh, when you married. That happens more often than we like to think, that, that people are simply unfamiliar with the scripture and you found yourself, realizing, I, didn't, I didn't see that, I didn't realize that. It may be that you got bad advice. It may be that you just simply sinned, however it is. So we find ourselves there. That's why Paul addressed it, as, addressed it in his first letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
It says here, if you're married to an unbeliever, here's how to live so that your life will be blessed by God and your children's too. But still, as we prescribe, as we enter in and we covenant with God to follow after him as a believer, as someone who isn't married, to say, I'll marry in the faith, in the Lord, as Paul puts it. Or as parents, to do all that we can to encourage our kids to marry in the Lord. In fact, I, uh, I've always said and will continue till I take my last breath uh, for couples preparing for marriage. They always say, what's the most important thing to know? And I say, the most important thing to know and to have confidence in is that the person you're marrying is a believer in Jesus. That's a tough thing to discern when you're young and in love. But it's crucial. Get help from others in the midst of that. So that's how they covenant together here. And that's this reorientation of one's life. And, and, and the question is, really, does God have the right and does he have the wisdom and love to direct even such intimate relationships? Are we willing to submit to redirect our lives in such a way to turn away from our own wisdom and our own passions, perhaps even, and to say, God, you direct me in this. Even if it means I feel lonely or empty or you direct. And so the question is, does God have that right? And does he have the wisdom to do that? And of course, the answer is yes, he has the right. He made us. And B, he does have more wisdom than we. He knows everything. And is he good? Yes. And so to trust him in the midst of that. And just as they redirected their lives in this way because of the the word of God, the wisdom of God, and then we too direct our lives in this way uh, as well. Then Sabbath. I need to move quickly here. Sabbath. um, uh, He says this. He says, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Now, what was happening is you have a group of people that don't have very much. They haven't been able to produce very much. And what they produce goes to the king, a lot of it, the best of it. And so, so here they are wanting stuff. And they know that the Sabbath for them, fourth commandment to of that day is holy unto the Lord, and so they weren't to do any work, and they were to, to, to on that day honor the Lord with their worship. And, and so here come the neighboring nations with lots of stuff to sell on the Sabbath. And are they going to trust God that he'll provide what they need? Are they going to be distracted from their own worship of God? And they were being such. And so they said, we'll no long- we get it. We will no longer do that. We'll trust, we'll trust God. There's all kinds of complications for Christians in understanding this whole idea about the Sabbath. Um, uh, Jesus, of course, uh, with his carryings on of healing people, confused everyone about what was right to do on the Sabbath. Paul talks about holy days and Sabbath days and so forth and how we're to treat them and not treat them and how they're important and not important. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this Sabbath rest that, that, that is bigger than any one day, of course, that's eternal. Um, Christians moved, if you will, this day of gathering and worship from a Saturday to a Sunday in honor of the resurrection. And so often, maybe not often enough, but often the question is asked, so what do we do 
about this sense of, of Sabbath. Is it right to play games? Is it right to watch TV? Is it right to, 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 to work? Is it right to do term papers? Is it right to play sports? Is it, what, what do we do on this, on this Sabbath day? And I'm not going to solve that problem for you in the next minute or two, ever, probably, even. Uh, but this, I think, again, the question, does God have the right to order our days? Does he have the right and wisdom to order our time? Does he have the right to say, in creation, I made a pattern, one day in seven, to rest. And we know that rest doesn't come from sleeping. We're to sleep nightly, I suppose, not daily, nightly, uh, to be refreshed in that way. So it isn't about sleeping, it's not about napping, although Sunday afternoon naps are fine, I assume. Um, but, but it's not about that. Real rest comes by way of the realization that God is ruling and reigning. I'm not, he is. And I can rest in that. That's rest. And so you see, whatever else happens on this gathering day for believers, whatever else happens on that day, we must find real rest. And it won't come, no matter how many home runs you hit, how many goals you score, how many term papers you finish or start. Uh, how many, uh, uh, you know, how much work you get done or whatever else you do. It comes from realizing that God is God and you are not. And the way he's designed that to happen primarily is for Christians to gather with each other. And not only that, you see, there's a great sense of identity with this gathering. I must tell you that when I think of myself, I don't think of myself alone. And I don't think of myself really even with my own family. I think of myself essentially with you. This, being part of the body of Christ, is my identity. And if I don't do this, I forget that. I forget I belong together with you. I don't see you enough. It's sort of like family reunions. They're good in the sense that we remember, oh yeah, these are my people, I, I, you know. And this is like that family reunion, but God says you need it once a week. Come, come and gather together, or you'll forget about each other. You'll forget about it. You'll get lonely. You'll, you'll start thinking bad things about the other. So you've got to show up and face-to-face it in the presence of God together and worship. So at the end of the day, I always tell parents, no matter how many home runs were hit, how many goals were scored, how many whatever happened in the course of the, your kids' lives, what you should be talking about in the evening when you put your kids to bed is worship on a Sunday. That's the most important thing. Whatever else happens, that's the most important thing for this day is this time. And then they were to be generous. He says they were to, to, they, 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 they were to forego the crops of the seventh year. Uh, Leviticus tells them that they were to, to plant their crops for six years, years in the seventh year not to plant anything. But the God would be faithful, and the seventh year, there would be stuff. And uh, this aftergrowth, and there would be sufficient for them. And not only for them, but for the poor. And the poor were to take those fields as well. And so they were to trust God. And so the question is, would they be able to trust God for his provision? And then, of course, for the temple. 
The temple was the very center of their lives. It was through the temple that they were able to, to, to access God. And, and, and he, he lived there in the Holy of Holies. He lived among his people. Now we got, you know, God is everywhere. But we said he dwelled in that place. He said, I really live here. This is, this is where I live. It's where you can find me here. And it was a, a, a great sense of you've got to go through these priests and through these sacrifices. And somebody has to repus- represent you to get in there. But he said, if you don't maintain this temple, your whole life will go in the tubes, down the tubes. You've got to maintain this. This is my way of relating to you. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to reorient our lives. We're going to reorient everything so that we follow after you. That you are the focus of our lives. We're going to depend upon you for everything. The most intimate relationship of marriage. Our time and how we order it. And our worship. And how we come to you. And how we care for one another. Everything now changes. And what was the basis upon which they did this? You'll you'll notice verse 38 of chapter 9. We read this. Because of all of this. Well, because of all of what? Well, all, all of this. They had rehearsed their history. And they said, look how faithful God is. Here we are. We find ourselves in a measure of distress still. What should we do? Well, we should cry out to him. And we should, we should confess and we should reorient our lives once again to follow hard after him. Why? Because we know he's merciful. We know he'll receive us. And that's this sense of mercy. Notice how they put it in, in chapter 9 and verse 17. Uh, verse 16, one of the occasions of rebellion, he says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and didn't obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. And then verse 32 Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, that not all the hardships seem too little to you. Again, they knew who God was. He had made a name for himself. They knew him. And they said, it's your mercy. A little word, mercy. In Hebrew, is a word, chesed. You've got to kind of spit when you say it. And it's this sense of, of God's unwavering commitment to his glory, wherein he will be faithful to all he promises, and he will be faithful in love. It's this unbreakable love that God has committed himself to. Oh, it's love with all the affections and and all of that, but, but it's this real binding, vow made. Love. But when David sinned, he appealed to the mercy of God. He said, God, you, you've promised to forgive the likes of me. You made promises to me. And so he says, I'm appealing not on the basis of my goodness, not on the basis of what I can attribute, not on the basis of what I can do, but simply up on your mercy. And God forgave him. Restored him. And drew him. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says that God says, I have drawn you with my mercy. I've drawn you with uh, my favorite translation. has said, my loving kindness. I've drawn you with it. 
I've drawn you with it. So even when you stray, you know you can return. Even when you stray, you know I'll be faithful. And so I draw you to this. That's exactly what they're saying. You've drawn us by your loving kindness. And therefore, we will reorient our lives to focus our attention in every dimension, in every direction to you. But you know, here's what's troubling to me about this passage. They had been doing this for a thousand years. Same old, same old. Rebellion, cry out, mercy of God. Rebellion, cry out, mercy of God. It's going to happen again. Chapter 13, everything they've just promised, they've, they, they go against. And you're going to go, Pfft. The question, is there an end to this ever? Is there an end to this ever? And there is. And we know it. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of it. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of it. As this new covenant. This covenant wherein God will take out hearts of stone, put in a heart of flesh, put his spirit within us, and cause us to walk in his way. Not just sort of this outward thing to which we try to subscribe and, and, and walk in, but, but an inward thing, a real movement of his spirit within us. And, and, and Jeremiah says he'll write his law upon our hearts and upon our minds. And, and so we, it's, 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 a, it's a change within that leads to this reorientation of, of life to follow after him. It's not a legalism that says I'm going to do this so that you will accept me, but rather it says you have changed me, thus I will follow and depend upon you. It's that reorientation of life. And we know that a day will come when we'll see Jesus and we'll see him as he is and everything will be purged from us, all of our sin, and we'll be made like him and, and it will really be the end of it. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body. It's given for you. The mercy, the steadfast love of God. I'll be your perfect, faithful bridegroom. You'll find rest for your souls in me. I'll provide all that you need. I'll not only maintain the temple, I am the temple. You'll find God in me, through me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? Well, we remember the mercy of God. Remember, he bids us come and we come. We remember he's at work in us to renew and to restore, enabling us to reorient our lives that we would follow him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that you would work in us even now great sense of assurance that you're working us and that you'll give us strength that we may not only believe but also follow and in our following that we would see the fruits of our turning away and turning to and that you would cause us 
to walk in your ways. Even now I pray that you remind us of all that you wisely and graciously command and enable us to align our lives with all that you command and that we may joyfully submit. And this for your glory and your glory contains our good. Please, I pray, take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we'll know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. He with us, we with him. And Father, that you would work in us all that is well-pleasing in your sight. And this I pray in Jesus' name.